Today on Against the Grain. Most of us assume that our medical data is protected under U.S. law, but as sociologist Mary Ebling illustrates, that's wrong. Even when we don't collect it ourselves with fitness trackers and health apps, our most sensitive health information is gathered from across the web and packed and sold as data commodities by brokers like the credit bureaus Equifax and Experian. Ebling discusses the afterlives of our medical data, as well as the lack of medical data privacy in a post-Roe world. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. In the last decades, it's come to light that we're all being surveilled and tracked over the internet and that our information is packaged and sold in order to profit off of us. However, our medical data would seem to be protected under laws like the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA. Yet HIPAA provides very few protections of our medical information, which is routinely collected, traded, and sold. With the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the surveillance of our medical records has become especially chilling. In Afterlives of Data, Life and Debt under Capitalist Surveillance, Mary Ebling traces how our medical data live on. She's professor of sociology at Drexel University, Mary, tell us about your own experience with the afterlives of data following a miscarriage. How I kind of got into researching the biopolitics of data and how data are, are, especially our health data, are used in myriad ways um, all kind of started um, back in 2011. uh, I was undergoing... um, several rounds of IVF. And on my last round, um, I was enrolled in a clinical trial at the clinic, and I successfully became pregnant. And I had been, I think it was around week six, And because it was a high-risk pregnancy and because I was enrolled in this clinical trial, uh, the clinic was closely monitoring uh, the progression of the the pregnancy. And it was around week six that I um, went to the clinic, had uh, an ultrasound, and that afternoon I came back from the clinic and my... um, postal delivery um, in that uh, afternoon's mail was a free sample of um, Similac that was directly sent to me. I, you know, didn't order it, nothing like that. Similac being the uh, baby formula. The baby formula, yes. And um, I thought that was curious. Um, but I was kind of, you know, so excited and overwhelmed by, by being pregnant after so many years um, and going into debt uh, to be pregnant um, that, you know, it just kind of like, oh, that's kind of funny. Isn't that strange? And then a few weeks later at another ultrasound is when I got the news from my doctor. I mean, I could see it right there on the screen that um, I had miscarried the the, the fetus had died. And so I was in this state of being pregnant and not being pregnant. Um, and that day I came home and I had gotten in that mail's delivery uh, was a, a free subscription and the first issue of the free subscription to American, some magazine called American Baby. And I was outraged, devastated. I mean, the cruelty of it uh, just devastated me. And I immediately called up the, you know, I looked up 
the in the masthead, looked up who the publisher was, tried to call the publisher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And basically, you know, demanded, how did this, you know, how did you get my name? How, you know, how did this happen? And I just miscarried today. So thank you very much. And then after that, it was an unrelenting stream of um, both uh, through email, through online ads, through, um, through physical mail, through phone calls um, from marketers. I was just bombarded as if I were pregnant. And the last uh, bit of... Um, uh, in my first book, I, I kind of, you know, I took on the, the role of a, a noir kind of grizzled old, you know, gumshoe to investigate how did this phantom find me and, and you know, was knocking on my door. And so the it was this last piece of mail that uh, arrived to me um, in November. So I miscarried in March of 2011. And by November 2011, I received a letter from a uh, infant language lab at a local university, not far, far from my home, who uh, had invited me and my baby to come into the lab and, and participate in some research in early language acquisition, something like that. And so knowing, you know, I'm a sociologist, I have this background, um, and ironically, I also was a sociologist that, that at that point had been studying uh, direct-to-consumer marketing of pharmaceuticals. So I already had kind of this knowledge and experience of part of the industry. And so I, I called up the language lab knowing because uh, knowing that they had to undergo an IRB, which, in, which stands for uh, an Institutional Review Board. Uh, which all universities and research centers have to um, basically get clearance, ethical clearance um, for all human subject research. So I knew that this lab had had to have undergone an IRB, and so I knew that they had to tell me how they got my information. And so I called them up, and I told them exactly what had happened. And they turned around to their computer, looked up the database that they had purchased from, they had purchased a database from Experian, which most people in the United States, and uh, because it's a global company, people around the, in at least 38 other countries would know as a credit bureau. Um, but they, most of the work or most of their um uh, the revenue revenue streams uh, come from uh, selling, buying, and selling marketing data. Um, so they're a data broker um, and one of the largest in the world. They own about ninety eight percent, or they own um, data on ninety eight percent of American households, for example. Yes, um, so. They, you know, they told, told me everything, and they were appalled and astonished by that this could happen. And that just kind of led me on to, you know, um, I started this research in earnest in, in 2013. Once I got that information from this uh, research lab about how, where my data were purchased from, and it was from Experian, and and where did they gather the information? That is, um, that's what my life has been dedicated to since. Since, uh, so they purchase. They um, basically what data brokers do, like Experian, but there are thousands of data brokers um, of various uh, levels um, in the data economy. Uh, so for Experian. Um, this information is proprietary. They have refused to give this information to, like, congressional hearings. So as far as I could, in my own research, kind of understand where all of their 
data come from? They make claims that uh, their data come from public and private sources. So public sources will be things like court systems, dr uh, um, department of vehicles like driver's license information, voter registration information, um, uh, death certificates, marriage certificates, divorce certificates, um, you know, uh, deed records, all of that kind of um, publicly available data. Uh, and then private um, sources will be things like um, they will have um, contractual agreements uh, with um, retailers. Uh, they will, they, uh, I do know um, from some research that I did with credit unions um, that uh, at least in the United States, um, all of, um, when a customer walks through um, a retailing bank's uh, doors, like if you open a new account, um, a credit check has to be done or, you know, information has to be collected on, you know, an, uh, a customer that's opening an, a new bank account. And there are agreements, like basically all of, at least in the United States, that system, that background check system, that data check system is done through Experian. And once those data, like once a, a, a retail bank um, collects this information through the Experian platform, that those data that are collected on a new customer becomes the property of Experian. So that would be an example of uh, how they get, um, how they are able to access quote unquote private sources of data. So basically, you know, they have a whole system in place and a lot of IP in place, uh, intellectual property, so patents in place to guarantee a steady stream of um, data assets that will come into Experian that then become the raw materials that will be made into uh, a variety of data products that are bought and sold. And tell us more about these products, who buys them, and what uses do they put them to? Experian has um, a product called Mosaic, and it's a, um, it's a market segmentation product. And that's the product where um, they, they basically have data of 98% of American households. And that data will be segmented into various categories. Um, and so for my, for my experience, what, I, what happened to me was my data were siloed into a product called New Baby Data Product. And that is the data product that was purchased by the research laboratory. And when I asked them about that, you know, they gave me all of this information. And they, they said that in the database that they purchased, this new baby, newborn network um, product that they purchased, they were able to um, delineate, you know, how many new babies were born with, within this time frame within these zip codes, like the zip codes kind of surrounding the laboratory. And, and they said that uh, within their d database, they had about 1,200 um, families within that product. So that's like one example of what a company like Experian will, will do. So they collect all of these data from disparate sources they uh, repackage them into new data products, and then they sell these products to anyone, and I mean anyone, who has the money to pay for these um, databases, these products. So listeners might wonder, well, what about the protections that are supposed to be put in place for medical information, uh, including HIPAA, which is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, was the information that was 
taken up by Experian, gathered simply through healthcare uh, providers like the fertility clinic, or did it also come from other sources that are not were not officially within that realm of healthcare? In this kind of um, in my gumshoe detective work, um, I was able to. Again, I could never, Experian would never speak to me. I tried, they never would speak to me. <laughs> but through speaking to other data brokers, uh, speaking to experts who um, work on like uh, the credit card swipes that happen and what kind of data are in every credit card swipe that happens. So this is basically what I understood happened with my data and what is happening with millions of patients' data in the United States. So HIPAA is in place not to necessarily um, protect a patient's individual privacy, but rather to make their data safe and so that they can be um, shared with payers, with um, different aspects of the healthcare system, different uh, players in the healthcare system, in order to um, provide healthcare. So the data, as long as data are within what are called, under the HIPAA legislation, they're called covered entities. And cover enti covered entities are any uh, organization that is quote-unquote covered by HIPAA, by the legislation. So that would be hospitals, doctor offices, um, third-party contractors that work within a, a healthcare setting. Um, and then some third parties that are outside of like specifically a healthcare setting or outside of kind of the covered entity, but who do kind of essential work with a covered entity. So all of those uh, groups are called covered entities. And so as long as the data, the healthcare data uh, that's connected to a patient are circulating within this uh, kind of closed loop, um, the data are in theory covered by HIPAA, and, um, and certain things have to happen to the data in order to make them safe, for them to leave that, that uh, closed loop, um, and it's that, that's where things kind of get muddy. So in my case, what I think happened with my data and how Experian were able to kind of triangulate data in such a way to at least figure out that I might be pregnant. And then my pregnancy kind of followed a, um, a very um, uh, middle class, um, late capital kind of projection on how pregnancies are supposed to happen. <laughs> so basically what I think happened was um, I had to use a credit card to pay for services that the healthcare that the fertility clinic were not um, that were not covered by my health insurance or by the clinical trial. So I made credit card swipes in my doctor's office, and then I also had to order fertility drugs from a pharmacy. Um, and pharmacies are also covered entities. However, in 2011, the Supreme Court declared that any prescri prescription data that a pharmacy holds is considered their assets. And as long as they um, de-identify that data, they can sell it to third parties. And they do sell this data all the time to... Um, third parties like Experian. And there are other kind of specialty data brokers that specialize in um, the pharma industry that they also sell data to. So what I think happened uh, was despite HIPAA 
being in place. And despite all of my data or a lot of my clinical data being ostensibly uh, protected by HIPAA, um, I was leaving an, enough of a data trail, both within the clinic and then without the clinic. So, you know, I was looking up, you know, on websites, just, you know, what uh, to expect in early pregnancy. Or I used, um, uh, and I still use it today, and I don't know why I do it, <laughs> but I, I use um, uh, loyalty cards at, like, my, at my retail pharmacy where I was buying prenatal vitamins or I was buying um, when you're undergoing IVF, you often, your doctor will tell you to both get an uh, over-the-counter ovulation kit and then an over-the-counter um, pregnancy kit just to kind of track things. And so, you know, I was buying these at my local CVS and then using my loyalty card to get, you know, I don't know, a coupon. Um, and all of that data are, you know, under contractual agreements with data brokers are sold. Now, they're supposed to be de-identified, but because these powerful data brokers, you know, are on the cutting edge of um, algorithmic science, you know, on how to triangulate data. I mean, it's pretty easy to put together, to kind of re-stitch together um, data uh, and to pinpoint the uh, individual person that the data are connected to. Um, despite all of these, you know, millions of dollars that um, hospitals have to invest in in de-identifying patient data and making it, you know, HIPAA compliant, there are super easy ways for the, those data to be re-identified. As long as um, a data broker has someone's zip code and, you know, I think maybe their Netflix account or, you know, like, like just two or three three points of data, uh, they can re-identify someone. Mary Ebling is my guest. She's a sociologist. We're discussing her book, Afterlives of Data, Life and Debt Under Capitalist Surveillance. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So the uh, picture that you're painting is one in which regulation seems to be sorely wanting in terms of adequately protecting people's personal medical information and just their, their private information in general. You mentioned the inadequacies of HIPAA. Are there any other regulations that are supposed to govern and protect us in terms of very sensitive information being harvested and then sold and then used to profit? Basically, our whole legislative system is not working for us. It's working for the data industry. One of the things about the U.S. Uh, legislative system or regulatory framework for data in the United States is that we don't have omnibus legislation. So we have very uh, a very fragmented legislative system to protect um, personal data. So we have HIPAA. We have the High Tech Act, which is um, specifically more about electronic health data, um, among many other things. Um, we have the Fair Credit Reporting Act, and then we have um, legislation that, it, um, that specifically protects minors in terms of their data. But we don't have an omnibus law, something like in the EU or in places like Japan. But the other thing I, I would like to say is that part of the problem with our political system is that we let corporations write our laws. And I don't mean that figuratively. I mean that literally that they are writing our laws. So the Ensuring Patient Access to Healthcare Information Act. I know that it was uh, a basically written pretty much by whole cloth written 
by um, a data broker's lobbyist and like legal team, and then presented um, to lawmakers. Um, and basically, that law. Um, it has not passed, but that law was written to basically ensure this one data broker, but potentially other data brokers, could be considered a covered entity um, and become a data clearinghouse um, so that they would have direct access, so that basically they would be inside HIPAA and have direct access to all of this healthcare data. Um, but I mean, there are other, like, I don't know if uh, you've seen um, just this week, um, the National Health Service um, and, and Palantir. This is the data analytics firm, which is rather notorious because of its role in working for the US state in ICE. Palantir is basically a military and CIA contractor. Um, an ICE contractor. Um, and during the pandemic, they had got a huge lucrative contract with H with the Health and Human Services Department to do contact tracing during the pandemic. And uh, just this, um, just a few days ago, um, the news has been breaking that they're also starting to engage in a contract with um, the National Health Service in the UK, so doing similar kind of work. Um, I will also say there are five states that have recently either passed legislation, like their legislation is on the books now, or they have um, an operational, or they have the, the bills in place and they're going to be passed into law soon. Um, and that's, of course, California, Virginia, Utah, Connecticut, and Colorado, um, who have similar, have drafted and passed similar legislation, similar to the EU's legislation. So basically what happens in the EU, why it's omnibus legislation rather than fragmentary legislation, is that the EU understands that uh, basically makes personhood out of data. So your data are connected to you and not to an industry. Let me ask you about electronic healthcare records. For years leading up to the advent of a widespread use of electronic healthcare records, they were championed or sold as a, a means for patients to have more access to their information and hence to be able to uh, demand better health care and that there were a virtuous cycle would emerge from having electronic health care records. And of course, at this point, you really don't have any choice. If you're getting medical care, your, your information is going to find itself in electronic form. What do you make of electronic healthcare records, who are they designed for? Clinicians and patients or something else? Yes. Uh, so in my interviews with, especially with clinicians um, who are completely beleaguered by electronic health records, cl uh, electronic health records um, are for billing. They're not for, they're for billing. They are not designed for clinical care. Um, and so that, that, I'll just put that out there. I mean, over and over again, clinicians um, have said this. They are also not designed for patients. Um, I know under the High Tech Act, passed in um, 2009, as part of the uh, Economic Recovery Act, kind of the bigger act to kind of pull um, the U.S. economy out of the disaster that was created by Wall Street and by the um, mortgage derivatives crash. Um, and so under the High Tech Act, part of the provi uh, that basically um, regulated that all healthcare systems uh, and clinicians, like from the smallest doctor's office to the largest, 
you know, commercial hospital systems, um, had to um, what was called in the law uh, implement, quote unquote, meaningful use of electronic health care records. Part of the High Tech Act also uh, said that um, any practice that had that implemented EHR had to provide patient portals. I think it's about like 9%, maybe, if I'm not mistaken, of patients actually have access, like online access to their healthcare records, like that know about and can access um, their, uh, their records through a patient portal. But that doesn't Again, that does not give a patient control or ownership over their health data. Well, and let me just add that, and it also seems to set people up for the problems that can happen, seems all too frequently, of data breaches, right? That if that information is online, that your sensitive medical information might find its way you know, directly into the hands of people you don't want to have it. Um, that's certainly true, but your data are already escaping, and it doesn't take a data breach for that to happen. Sure. You know, so, but yes, you're absolutely right. There are many players in this, but I wanted to ask you about the role of insurance companies, who obviously are very interested in uh, having information about people not stripped of identifying information how do you see them in this? Yes. Um, so, yes, health insurers, I mean, they are, again, very powerful players in this whole data economy, um, this economy and health data. So, for example, Kaiser Permanente, you know, huge insurer, very powerful corporation in the United States. And they have a direct interest in um, both the clinical and the billing data uh, that are produced by patients uh, in our healthcare system. And uh, they work um, both with hospitals, with employers who, you know, are basically subscribers to, you know, insurance companies, well over... Um, 50%, if not higher, of um, employed Americans get their health insurance through their employers. So health insurers will collaborate with employers um, in order to do kind of data analysis on all of this data, which, you know, ostensibly, again, is supposed to be de-identified from individual patients, but it's very easy to re-identify as, you know, because this is the job of, of these outside data brokers to re-identify and target individuals. With Kaiser Permanente, um, they're so powerful that they basically um, have insisted on starting to collect and, and code or quantify things like um, social determinants of health data into patients' records. Um, and they're they're in what are called in the um, the coding system, which is called ICD. There's a um, set of codes called the Z codes, and within the Z codes um, are uh, codes that will code for things like systemic racism, or co homelessness, or um, food insecurity. Um, and this was uh, directed by Kaiser Permanente. Um, and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, um, but that just kind of demonstrates that um, the power that health insurers um, can have in terms of redirecting how data should be um, collected within hospitals and doctor's offices, how they should be coded, and how they should be integrated in order to either provide care or to save money. Um, and it's usually, I mean, my argument is that, you know, a lot of these 
Um, and, it, you know, like I said, physicians will often say um, EHR are made for billing, not for clinical care. And um, so there, there, there is this understanding that uh, social determinants of health data will help save the system money, uh, having, having information access to that will help save health insurers money, essentially. I'm speaking with Mary Ebeling. She's professor of sociology at Drexel. We're talking about afterlives of data, life and debt under capitalist surveillance. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, you mentioned early in the program COVID and recently the idea of collecting information about social determinants of health, which, you know, if you were... On the one hand, you might say, well, you know, that's crucial information for understanding people's health and well-being. And you've, of course, raised the question of whether it will be deployed that way or not. But I wanted to ask you, just broadly speaking, what about the use of medical data for public health purposes, whether it is in the context of a pandemic or during uh, less emergency times when this information potentially could be used to identify places where there would be more need for resources and so on? Yes. So um, part of my research was conducted in a population health uh, informatics center. So this is all that was happening in this center. Um, I observed data scientists um, using thousands and thousands and thousands of patients' clinical and billing data in in new ways um, within this healthcare, this kind of the broader, they had access to uh, these data because they were connected to um, uh, a hospital system. Um, and, you know, they were doing some pretty amazing things, you know, trying to identify through um, clinical and billing data, um, areas of need in, in the city that um, they are working in um, for things like access to COVID testing um, or uh, vaccination um, for, during, for COVID, um, identifying um, needs for new clinics in areas that were being underserved. Um, and they were doing this all through um, patient records, essentially. Um, and so I, I do think that there is a need and it's important to use certain kinds of healthcare data in order to save lives. Um, I think what I am concerned about and what I have been warning about over and over again is that so often uh, this is not how our data are being, how our health data are being used. They're being used to do all sorts of other things other than to um, improve healthcare outcomes and to save people's lives. So I think the most egregious example I can give is um, the, I, I mention it in my book, but the, the Pima Indians data set which was developed in the 1950s or 60s, uh, you know, decades ago, um, that they collected health data on residents, uh, Native American reservation, and uh, on diabetes work. And this was done by the U.S. government? Yes, it was done by the U.S. government. Uh, public health researchers, um, along with the U.S. government, and basically they collected all of this um, biomedical data from thousands of residents. Um, and that data are now used as uh, training sets um, for uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning um, and do not account for the data sets themselves can't even account for things like, you know, colonization, hundreds of years of colonization. Um, it can those data sets cannot account for the systematic undermining of of Native American access to um, arable productive land to grow their own food, et cetera, et cetera. And the training set is now not even used 
or the data set is not even used for the direct benefit of Native Americans, but rather it's used to predict, use uh, to help machine learning predict things like um, if a, um, a sewer pump is going to uh, fail, things like that. And this was gathered without the consent of the people involved? Yeah, well, yes, because it was these data were collected in a time before um, things like the Belmont Report and, you know, certain um, consent laws were put in place for medical research. What do you make of the assumption that the kind of information that's being gathered uh, when you aggregate it, it makes it neutral and free of human bias and therefore might could be argued might be better for research because it's not contaminated in the sense of you know the subjectivity of of people assessing the material right um so i um completely uh, all data are biased <laughs> um uh, the data will be um i mean from how they're collected to how they're organized, how they're labeled. They're, the human hand and human bias is like baked in. It's, it's impossible um, for there not to be bias um, in, in data. Um, and, you know, another great example would be the um, 80 million tiny images data set that was um, removed, so that was a data set that was owned, developed and owned by MIT. And they had to remove it um, from use um, because when an audit was done of the, um, of the 80 million images, the, all of the images of human beings were labeled um, in uh, in ways that were incredibly harmful to certain groups of people, and so the basically so images of women, uh, the, uh, all I should say that all of these images were collected through um, scraping Google images. So the data set itself was built by uh, trawling and kind of scraping. 80 million images from, from the web. <laughs> and so already there's, there's a bias right there. And then um, because those images were labeled by who knows who, um, and those images, you know, images of women were predominantly from porn. Images of people of color were labeled in really gross and, and racist terminology. And the scientists that created the data set did not audit these images. So they didn't know that these images were labeled or that, the, you know, that there are all these, you know, predominantly the images of women all were pornographic. So the scientists themselves that built the data set did not do an audit of what they had. And then they used that data set as a tr um, to train uh, machine learning to you know, do things like um, identify faces. So, um, human faces. So if, you know, a computer is seeing an image of a, a pornographic image of a woman and it's the image is labeled, you know, slut, all the human faces that um, the machine recognizes that as female are going to be sluts. So, I mean, that's kind of one example. So MIT were forced to, once this audit was done in 2020 of uh, 80 mil million tiny images, they had to take down the, the learning set and not make it publicly available. Even before the official confirmation that the Supreme Court had overturned Roe versus Wade, there had been discussion about the possibility of women getting abortions out of state, women who are resident in states where abortion was banned, traveling to other places 
and having abortions. I wanted to know if you were concerned at all about the possibility that these people would be tracked through their medical data and that their abortions elsewhere would be uh, known to authorities in their home states. I'm very concerned, absolutely. Early in my research, I spoke with data brokers um, who talked about how all of our data are health data. And what they mean by that is that these third-party data brokers are collecting large swaths of our information without our knowledge and without our consent. They hold this information and they can make inferences about our health from these large um, data oceans about us. So it is very possible for a data broker, a company like Experian or LexisNexis, and this been, has been shown over, the, over and over, the, um, our data together into segments and sell this data to um, uh, government agencies like ICE. Uh, this has happened with, um, in Colorado and Denver, Colorado, um, with uh, undocumented migrants. Um, ICE was able to purchase data from LexisNexis on immigrants. Um, and it happened to me. So I was pregnant. Um, this information was sold, was collected and sold by Experian on me. And I was marketed to based on my pregnancy condition, on the, on the fact that I was pregnant, um, even if I was pregnant for just a few weeks and then I had a miscarriage. So our health data are not adequately protected under legislation like HIPAA because our data are already out there and in the hands of these third-party data brokers that will sell our data to anyone who buys it, who has the money to buy it. So the Roe v. Wade decision was about um, both privacy and bodily autonomy. Um, and we have to think that all of us, um, we both, we have two bodies. We have our physical bodies, and then what we, ha we also have what I call our data bodies. So these data brokers have a lot of information um, about us, about our bodies, about our health, that they hold in their databases, and that they can draw upon and, and package that information to sell to anyone who has the money to buy that information. So our, we no longer have, and we haven't had, privacy and bodily autonomy for our data bodies. We lost that a long time ago. And so it won't take a, a, um, a breach of like our health records, our data are already out there. So I do agree with the advice of, you know, for women, if you have a period tracking app, to delete it from your phone. You know, be careful about what you search on the Internet if you're searching for uh, abortion clinics in other states or if you're um, searching for how to get medication to terminate a pregnancy over the internet. You should be, be very cautious and careful of, about that. But there are so many ways that our data, that our health conditions and uh, the state of our health are already being tracked by, by big data and by um, data surveillance that, you know, even if you're not feeding the, the big data beast by handing over data through searches or through using apps, our data are still at risk, are still being, we are still being tracked without our knowledge and without our control. Let me end by asking you what can be done, because uh, what you're, you've been emphasizing is that all of this has happened without our consent and that opting out is not an option. So... I'm a sociologist. I tend to be very pe pessimistic, but, <laughs> and all doom and gloom, but I take great hope 
And I'm really excited about, you know, collective action. So I feel like anything that can be changed with this has can only happen not by, you know, individ, you know, kind of taking individual responsibility, but by collectively organizing together to force change. So I, I'm thinking of, I take a lot of inspiration from an organization like Mahente. Um, Mahente has been going after um, uh, LexisNexis, who um, has sold um, through their, I think they call, I also talk about LexisNexis risk solutions in my book, um, but in terms of what they sell to healthcare. Um, but they also, LexisNexis also sells data sets to ICE. And so Mahente um, and uh, ICE has been buying these data sets from, um, from LexisNexis in order to um, uh, work around uh, sanctuary, sanctuary laws. So I, I know that Mahente has been working in Denver, that is a sanctuary city, and um, ICE had um, purchased a data set on migrants in Denver through LexisNexis in order to circumvent their sanctuary laws, in order to go after migrants. So I take great hope and I'm excited by organizations like Mahente who are like directly going after data brokers and ICE um, to, to stop this. I'm also like really excited by organizations like um, Data for Black Lives that also um, are fighting for any data that are collected on black people in black communities, um, that the data are uh, collected in consensual and unharmful ways, and that they are used directly for the benefit of black communities. So to me, the only way to fight this uh, is through collective action. Mary Ebeling, thank you so much. Thank you. It was wonderful talking to you. Mary Ebeling is the author of After Lives of Data, Life and Debt Under Capitalist Surveillance. That's published by UC Press and at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. She's professor of sociology at Drexel University, and her other works include healthcare and big data. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. <laughs>